You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I want to talk about the history of the feminist movement because this movement in particular is very pernicious and uh, this movement with the gay movement has really <laughs> thrown a wrench into society, into culture. And I want to go through the waves. Uh, they're so-called waves of feminism. There's four waves. And I want to go through those waves and then talk about Christina Hoff Summers, who wrote who, this book, Who Stole Feminism. She's not a believer. She's a feminist. But she thinks feminism has gone way too far. And she tells some hilarious, crazy stories, which I'll get to at the end, uh, about how feminism, basically girls gone wild. Uh, so I'm going to get to that. But first, a word from our sponsor. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. But before I start, I want to just quote a very famous feminist, Gloria Steinem. Many of you will know her name. She says, quote, a liberated woman is one who has sex before marriage and a job after. Uh, so that's kind of that's kind of the starting point. I've talked about this before, but a lot of my female friends who are my age now and who bought the lie of feminism uh, really kind of hardcore and who are single now and don't have a family and kind of threw their whole lives into their careers, a lot of them have such regrets about it. And uh, it's really it's really sad because uh, I, I, I talk about this uh, and what I, I wrote this down that Status money in cats took the place of husbands, kids, and carpools. I know that's, <laughs> that sounds radical, but it's just funny to me. And then, you know, I, I talked about this before, I think, but in the 90s, 
talk daytime talk shows like the Oprah Winfrey show always ask this question, can women have it all? Can women have a wonderful soulmate and perfectly well-behaved children and a thoroughly gratifying, impressive career? And that was kind of put on, it was thrust on or foisted on American culture. So just nonstop, it was just a nonstop barrage of that kind of idea. And the guests on Oprah's show and who who could do all these things were a lot of them were movie stars or you know actresses or uh pop stars or whatever and of course it you know with nannies drivers and, uh, and personal chefs they could quote have it all but for the rest of the world it was it was this kind of bar that was set so high that women felt so defeated and so I want to get into the waves, the waves of feminism. So the first wave of feminism began in the 1830s and culminated in the, in 19, August 18th, 1920, when the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified. It guaranteed all American women the right to vote. Uh, this wave officially launched in 1848 with Elizabeth uh, Cady Stanton, and uh, there were other figures involved in this, and um, their their criticisms included women's suffrage, the right to vote, property rights, access to higher education, and equal pay for for uh, equal work. So that, in a nutshell, is the first wave of feminism. And Margaret Sanger, actually the founder and president of Planned Parenthood, which at the time was originally called American Birth Control League, <laughs> was another figure in the first wave. She was actually a nurse and a sex educator who initiated the, the modern birth control movement. And uh, obviously we know her legacy today. Um, and so we then we moved to the second wave of feminism, which started... Uh, roughly in the 1960s to 1990s to the 1990s. And this is this is kind of where feminism really took off in a big way. This is also known as the women's liberation movement, uh women's lib. I, I don't know if you ever watch uh 70 1970s movies or TV shows they the there's all this there's always this term women's lib. It's hilarious. Um but this was known as the women's liberation movement. And it viewed society as patriarchal. So this is where femi feminism really starts to uh, pit men and women against each other in, a, in an extreme way. And it sought to liberate, quote, women from the shackles of male domination. Marxist ideology undergirded this whole movement, the second wave. Uh, but instead of the class struggle between the proletariat and the the bourgeoisie, the struggle was between male oppressors and the female oppressed. And as I said, men and women were now clashing and pitted against each other. And uh, we're going to talk about the notable figures of this wave, including Simone de Beauvoir, Betty Friedan, Germaine Greer, Kate Millett, Gloria Steinem, and I'm leaving out, I'm forgetting someone else, but I'm just going to take a look at 
just kind of some major figures of this wave and, and, and look at what they had to say about men, about society, about uh, the feminist movement. And so Simone de Beauvoir in 1949 published her book, The Second Sex. It was a two volume work. And she argued that woman is other to man's preeminence. In other words, women were victims of male dominance. She called for a feminist revolution and her work laid the foundation for the women's liberation movement in the U.S. And I've talked about this before, but I think she was the first feminist to to really separate, to, to start to separate sex from gender. And uh, so we can thank her for the gender ideology that's going on today. And then in 1963, Betty Friedan wrote, published The Feminine Mystique. And that this, this book was a crazy bestseller, which I've read, and it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. She argued that American women were suffering from a kind of malaise, also known as, quote, the problem that has no name. Due to the expectations of the feminine ideal placed on women, this mystique, so it's called the feminine mystique because this mystique or myth referred to homemaking, marriage, and child rearing as the ultimate fulfillment for a woman. She considered the idea of the, quote, happy housewife as an illusion which caused the widespread unhappiness of post-war American women. She co-founded the National Organization for Women now in the 70s. You always saw those signs, the circular signs that said now on them, uh, which was the most effective group in promoting the feminist cause and championing championing political activism and advocating for abortion rights. So abortion really this in the second wave, abortion really becomes something that is pushed uh, in this movement. And Betty Friedan said that motherhood was, quote, a comfortable concentration camp. She also said that mothers and wives are, quote, walking corpses, <laughs> which is insane. And then Germaine Greer, the Australian, she was a spicy Australian Feminist. And she wrote in 1970, she published The Female Eunuch. And she argued that women in a male dominated society were castrated, making them female eunuchs. That's why she called the book The Female Eunuch. Her focus on women's in- inhibited sexuality brought on by society's traditional mores and her demand for total sexual freedom was a major thrust of her, of her uh, ideas and thought. And, you know, we can trace kind of the TV show Sex and the City and many others, but back to Jermaine Greer's ideas and her work. We'll be right back after this short break. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Hi. 
Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. And then Kate Millett comes on the scene and she publishes, in 1970, she publishes the book Sexual Politics. Time magazine called it the Bible of women's liberation, quote unquote. She argued that male-female differences were simply cultural. So there were no innate differences between males and females, as the Bible clearly states in Genesis. She just said that these differences were just cultural. And after she came out as a lesbian, the women's liberation movement, women's lib, dovetailed with the gay movement and became a joint cause. So those those two causes merged in the 70s, the, the feminist movement, the gay movement. And that's why we, we are where we are today. And then Gloria Steinem, whom I quoted at the beginning, she's kind of Gloria Steinem is kind of the most recognizable face of of the feminist movement of this wave. Uh, and she's still alive today. I think she's like 82, 83. She has been on a crusade uh, in this movement since having an abortion in London when she was 22 years old. In, in 1972, she launched the feminist monthly magazine, Ms., which I did a whole episode on. We'll put the link below. I did an episode on Ms. Magazine. And Ms. Magazine brought feminism home to everyday American women. So Ms. Magazine was very insidious because it was a very, very popular, you know, magazine at grocery stores and women, just unsuspecting women would just buy it and then read it and get indoctrinated into feminist, into feminism. And chief among the accomplishments of this wave is the legalization of abortion in 1973 and Roe v. Wade. And then we move to the third wave of feminism. And this is kind of 1990-ish to sort of the present or to the 2010 kind of period. And this was a more radical, less cohesive iteration of the previous waves. And it can be traced back to riot girl, quote unquote, feminist punk uh, movement of the early 90s, which infused punk rock music with feminist politics. The term third wave was coined by Rebecca Walker in an article she wrote for Ms. Magazine called Becoming the Third Wave. Now, in this article, Walker, Rebecca Walker reflects on the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill Senate hearings, uh, very infamous hearings. She goes on to rail against men in general and then defines her idea of feminism. And she says, quote, To be a feminist is to integrate an ideology of equality and female empowerment into every fiber of my life. 
It is to search for personal clarity in the midst of systemic destruction, to join in sisterhood with women when often we are divided, to understand power structures with the intention of challenging them. She ends her rant with these words. Let this dismissal of a woman's experience move to move you to anger. Turn that outrage into political power. Do not vote for men unless they work for us. Do not have sex with them. Do not break bread with them. Do not nurture them if they don't prioritize our freedom to control our bodies, i.e. abortion, and our lives. I am not a post-feminism feminist. I am the third wave, she says. And the third wave had postmodernist underpinnings. Uh, and so it sought to redefine words and reclaim derogatory terms for the patriarchy. It tried to expose layers of oppression through the lens of intersectionality, uh, which is a tool to categorize one's personal disadvantage or discrimination through race, class, gender, sexual orientation, physical disability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This wave also sought to add abortion rights, push for gay marriage, advance trans rights, raise consciousness concerning gender identity, and advocate, advocate for social, economic, racial, and environmental justice. But wait, there's more. With the advent of social media, this is kind of where the fourth wave sort of gets started. Uh, some people don't really recognize the fourth wave, but this is social media... Uh, ratcheted up the feminist movement. And this is where it would be called the fourth wave. And it's the most extreme and strident wave of feminism, focusing on all sorts of terms and topics from, quote, mansplaining, body shaming, toxic masculinity, male privilege. You've heard all these terms. So this fourth wave, the so-called fourth wave, is really, it's it's really, really radical. And it has the consequences of this, among others, it's, it's, it's made men and women very suspicious towards one another and resentful of, of each other. So Satan is thrilled by this. He's thrilled that he has men and women pitted against each other uh, and that the family is, is, I mean, this is such an attack on the family. It's such an extreme attack. And I always say this, when you attack the family, there's such fallout from it. There's a high divorce rate, which we see, obviously. There's um, mental illness, which we see. Uh, there's drug addiction, which is all a rampant in the country. Which, And there's homelet, which leads to homelessness. And I live in Los Angeles. Homelessness is out of control it's it's everywhere and it's it's most mostly a result of drug addiction which i which you could trace back to to this movement you can trace all of this back to this movement because this move the feminist movement really destroyed almost not completely but almost completely destroyed the family and destroyed the 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 God designed, the God ordained uh, relationship between a man and a woman in marriage and the family, and it's destroyed the family. 
And so I want to talk about Christina Hoff Summer's book, Girls, uh, Girls Gone Wild, Who Stole Feminism? Uh, I call it Girls Gone Wild because there are so many crazy stories. Christina Hoff Summers distinguishes two kinds of feminism, equity fem- feminism, which is just kind of fairness between the sexes and gender feminism. And what she's opposed to is this gender feminism of the kind of stuff I'm, I've just been talking about. And here is kind of a, a, a sample of some preposterous stories and terms that are that she talks about in her book. Um, she tells a story in her book about this this domestic violence. This was a story that domestic violence is the leading cause of birth defects in the U.S. This became a national story in the early 90s. Summers, she found the headline to be incredible. She found it to be unbelievable. So she began a long journey to get to the bottom of this bizarre claim. The original report allegedly came from a study conducted by the March of Dimes. After much sleuthing and searching, Summers finally contacted an official at the organization of of the March of Dimes. When asked about this damning report, this woman responded, we have never seen this research before. The mix-up began at a conference in 1989 for nurses and social workers when a speaker mentioned that some March of Dimes research showed that more women are screened for birth defects than domestic battery. She never mentioned a causal link between the two. But it was too late. The fake story had already convinced millions of American women that domestic violence caused birth defects. Gender feminists aren't concerned whether something is true or not, if it furthers their cause. So this is that's one, just one story. Another one is domestic battery increases by 40% on Super Bowl Sunday. I remember this, this story. But in, in 1993, television networks and newspapers reported this alarming finding. Feminists called for emergency preparations for the upcoming game. After checking with sources, Christina Hoff Summers confirmed that this story was fake as well. There was no such study ever done, but again, millions of women were duped into thinking men were dangerous and violent species, especially during the Super Bowl. And then she tells the story about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony being misogynistic. A professor at the University of Minnesota, musicologist professor, says, quote, the point of reca- she's talking about the Ninth Symphony, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. The point of recapitulation in the first movement of the Ninth Symphony is one of the most horrifying moments in music, as the carefully prepared cadence, frustrated, damming up energy, which finally explodes in the throttling, murderous rage of a rapist incapable of attaining of attaining release. Now, she's getting this from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. Now, this is a crazy story. Um, They're a very popular women's studies text, college textbook. By the way, if I say this all the time, if you send your child to college, your daughter to college, and they are a women's studies major, they're going, you're going to pay two, $300,000. They're going to graduate and they're going to pity their, her, their mothers for being mothers. And they're going to resent their fathers for their toxic masculinity. 
So please don't do that. Don't pay $300,000 for your daughter to be indoctrinated and end up hating you. So a, a very popular women's studies textbook contains a selection called, quote, sexual terrorism by Carol Sheffield. And Sheffield describes an epiphany while she was doing laundry at a laundromat one evening. And this is what she says about doing laundry at the laundromat. Quote, the laundromat was brightly lit and my car was the only one in the lot. Anyone passing by could readily see that I was alone and isolated. Knowing that rape is a crime of opportunity, I became terrified. And then she left the laundry in the dryer and ran to her car, locking her doors. After hurriedly retrieving her clothes, she reflects, quote, although I was not victimized in a direct physical way or by objective or measurable standards, I felt victimized. It was for me a terrifying experience. This woman was doing her laundry at a laundromat. Nothing happened to her, but she was victimized. So um, that's fun. And then there's linguistic reform. Masculinist words must be replaced. So seminars are now called ovulars because seminar comes from semen. So ovulars come from ovum or egg. Seminars are now ovulars. Theologians are now theologians. History is now herstory. Terms like great art, great literature, masterpieces and genius are no longer okay to say because they're hierarchical in nature and masculinist. They must be abolished. Even the term Big Bang Theory is offensive to young women. So what's the biblical wave? The biblical, I mean, in Genesis 2, we get a, a detailed account of the creation of humans and and God-ordained roles. And we see that man and woman are created and and they are created with equal value, but men and women have different roles. One is not better than the other. And I've talked about this before on the show. And what the one role is not better than the other. They're just different. And just like the Trinity, the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they have different roles. In the New Testament epistles, I mean the the words by Paul he says in Ephesians 5, 22 to 24, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and his is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, this is anathema to our culture today. And yeah, this can sound anachronistic, offensive and plain bizarre to, to our culture today. But Paul connects the submission of the wife to the church's submission to Christ. We see a pattern of headship in this message. Christ is the head of the church. The husband is the head of the wife. As Christians, we all submit to Christ. Submission is not a tragedy the way the culture portrays it. Uh, Submission, I love submitting to my Lord Jesus Christ. I love being in submission to him and obedience to him. I feel protected. I feel comforted by that. I feel joy by submitting to him, as I've talked about before. My friend Rosario Butterfield, 
who you guys, she's been on the show several times. She's a former lesbian feminist and women's studies professor. Uh, she became a Christian, praise God. And now she's a pastor's wife and a homeschool, a homeschooling mom. And she reflects on her new life. And she says, quote, 21 years ago, I railed against patriarchy, seeing submission of any kind as violence and a recipe for abuse. Today, I believe with all my heart and mind that the only safe place in the world for a woman is as a member of a Bible-believing church, protected and covered by God through the means of faithful elders and pastors, and, if God wills, a godly husband. Unimaginable joy is at the center of God's will. And she's spot on with that quote. But again, men are not let off the hook because Paul continues in Ephesians. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So Paul exhorts men to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's a pretty high standard to meet. And so we see that it is forbidden to abuse your headship uh, in Scripture. It's, it's forbidden, and this in no way allows any kind of tyrannical behavior. And I've talked about this before. I grew up in a house where my mother submitted to my father, his headship, uh, his, and my father. They were both Christians. So she submitted to him, and and... It's just, it's amazing to me that the fruit of that, because my my seven siblings all are so, first of all, they're all believers. And secondly, they all, they all kind of followed suit and are in marriages where there's that God designed, God ordained uh, design of of the balance of, of the roles and, and it's, it leads to such healthy marriages. And so I see the fruit of that. So I hope that helped uh, because as I always say, we don't live in a vacuum and all of these ideas over the decades, over the centuries have consequences and we are seeing the bad fruit of the cons of these ideas today in our culture. And we need to, you know, as believers, as Christians, we need to be aware of what we're being influenced by. Um, I, I think I, uh, I know of some professing Christians, some female friends, old friends of mine who are pro-choice and are pro-abortion. And I'm just like, Oh my goodness. Like what in the world? So it's like, Obviously, the culture and the feminist movement is influencing their minds and influencing their hearts. And, and so as believers, as Christians, we need to be aware of what is coming at us, why we think the way we think, what we believe. And as I always say, we're either giving into the pressure of the world or the pressure of the word, the word of God, the Bible. So stay in your Bibles. Uh, I need to preach that to myself too. But um, so thank you guys for watching. I hope that was a help and I will see you next time. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Hi, friend. Are you stressed, maybe even worried about so many needs around you that you've forgotten you are worth taking care of, too? Well, I'm Bonnie Gray, the host of Breathe, the Stress Less Podcast. I want to invite you to join me as I share practical tips based on science, inspired by God's Word, to help you spark joy and restore God's peace and love to your soul. Subscribe now and go to lifeaudio.com.